What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. Today we wrap up our series on fraud. We've been exploring issues of identity, faith, and love. We talked first about finding our identity in Jesus, then about how faith impacts our lives. Some say all you have to do to have real faith is just believe. That's it. But we found with belief comes action. And though our actions will likely never line up perfectly with what God wants for us, we pursue sanctification. Faith isn't all God has for us. There is a life of living to do that changes our lives and can dramatically impact the world around us too. Now, in our last look at fraud, we explore the future. What might life down the road hold for us? What can we see about ourselves and the world around us right now that tells us how our lives might look later? Let's start with a reading uh, by Ralph from 2 Corinthians. It's written by the Apostle Paul, who is defending himself to this small church in modern-day Greece. He was supposed to visit them and then didn't, but he heard good things about them. The division and fighting among them gave way to unity, and Paul is excited about this. But he also wants them to see a bigger vision for the world. This church can reveal the light of Jesus to everyone. Let's hear about this special treasure we have from 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. But we have this treasure in clay jars, so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, yet not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. But just as we have the same spirit of faith that is in accordance with Scripture, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. Yes, everything is for your sake, so that grace, as it extends to more and more people, may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure, because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what is what cannot be seen is eternal. Lamentations 3, 21 through 23. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. 
the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, may we be an inclusive community passionately following Jesus Christ. Make us bold in doing your will and open our hearts to the future you have for us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Growing up, I loved the movie Big. Uh, It featured Tom Hanks, who somehow went from a child to an adult overnight after making a wish at a fortune-telling machine. The moment where he makes his wish is eerie. He is mysteriously drawn to the machine, and as he smacks it to try and make it work, it suddenly turns on. He makes his wish, pushes the button, and a small business card dispenses that says, Your wish is granted. As he turns to walk away, he notices the machine was never plugged in to begin with. How did it even turn on? The rest of the movie is filled with the fun of a child inside an adult body, but wishes like that, they don't get granted, right? No matter how much we hope they might come true, it just doesn't work like that. Some people, though, may try very hard to convince you otherwise. Maria Duval is a name famous for fortune-telling. She was born in Italy, then lived in France as she built a reputation doing consultations and horoscopes. Her visions of the world exploding, humans living in space, and supposedly accurate predictions for elections and lottery numbers brought her world renown. She was so famous for this work that at one point she was featured on the cover of Vogue magazine. In the 90s, though, things changed. She started using her name in mailings to sell astrology charts, eventually went from charts to offers of direct help from Maria Duval. For a mere $40 per mailing, you would receive your lucky numbers, advice, and a special talisman. About 1.4 million people in the U.S. alone gave money to her. Across the world, Maria Duval made hundreds of millions of dollars with her predictions. Now, you might wonder how any of this is possible. Why would people listen to a psychic? The scheme is actually a lot more clever than you might think. One tactic is to put together what's called a sucker list by putting ads in the newspaper asking for people's Person, uh, their, their zodiac sign, their time of birth, and their marital status. When people respond to these anonymous ads, a separate letter comes from Maria, this one revealing <gasps> your zodiac sign, your birthday, and your marital status. Amazing. How could she have known, right? Governments around the world have tried to shut it down time and time again, but new versions keep popping up. The part that bothers me, though, are the people targeted by these scams. Too often it's the sick, people with dementia or Alzheimer's. Many times it's people that are so bored and so lonely, they are content to pay hundreds if not thousands of dollars for someone to write to them and offer help. Even if you know they are lies, just someone saying, I know what's going to happen to you is enough for someone to believe. Now, it seems to me that the impulse to know what the future holds for us is a natural one. 
Everywhere you look, people are either trying to figure out what the future holds or trying to get rich so that they can control their destiny. Predictions of doom and gloom are on the TV and magazines, so people want to protect themselves. Even in technology, you see this. Maybe you've heard about chat GPT. Uh, computers are, are getting closer and closer to writing just like humans. And a couple of weeks ago, this new chat bot was released, and it, uh, uh, it can create a story or explain a concept or even write an essay for you in just a few seconds. People were terrified by this. Uh, what if homework by students wasn't done by the student anymore? What if it was done by a chatbot? People declared that chat GPT was the end of all jobs that involve writing and the entire field of humanities. Uh, then three days later, someone made an app that can check to see if something was written by a person or using uh, the computer. And then the doomsday scenarios, they started to die down a little. Uh, and that's often how life is, isn't it? Boom and bust, revolution, and then restoration. We want to see the future, to know what life has in store for us, to protect against the enemy, and keep our charmed lives intact. But that's just not how the world works. Good and bad happens. Seemingly outside of our control, with the future remaining unknown, no matter how hard we might try to reveal it. The Apostle Paul, I think, is sympathetic to this desire. This passage in 2 Corinthians starts out with a very famous image of treasure in clay jars. It's sort of an odd juxtaposition. Treasure is valuable, and clay jars are a dime a dozen. They were specifically made from clay readily available in local rivers. You could make a jar today, and it would break tomorrow, and no one cared. You just make another one. So what treasure is he talking about that is in these disposable jars? Some people think Paul is talking about the soul. Our souls are this invaluable treasure, and it is con contained inside our mortal bodies. Our physical body might die and disappear, but the soul goes on. That's a nice idea, but it's definitely not what the Apostle Paul is saying. It's not the eternal soul and the finite body he's talking about. The treasure is not us. The treasure is Jesus. He's encouraging the church to keep at the ministry of sharing this good news about Jesus with everyone. He's saying how we don't travel from place to place or spend time in the city to tell people about ourselves. We are just these simple clay jars here today and gone tomorrow. The good thing we can share with this world is that the light of Jesus is shining in the darkness. God is changing things story by story, life by life, miracle by miracle. But it's definitely not easy, and this is where, to my mind, Paul has something important to say about our future. He doesn't say, God is amazing, so everything is going to be grand. No, he says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. There is this terrible list of things that will happen to us as fragile jars of clay with an incredible treasure inside. Paul is talking some about himself, both his past and his future. In the past, he was in jail, beaten, has to flee a mob, and then after being mistaken for a god sent by Zeus, is stoned. 
Imagine that. He's celebrated as a god, and then in a moment they turn on him and try and kill him. He goes from the top to the bottom in a flash. But somehow he survives the stoning, and you know what he does next? He walks right back into the city with the people who just tried to kill him. He keeps preaching. This is both ridiculous and amazing. But that's all in the past while he's writing to the Corinthians. We don't know the exact timeline, but very likely after he wrote to them, he is arrested, boldly proclaims Jesus to a mob, is put in jail, and as he's in prison, has this incredible vision from God. The Lord speaks to him that he will share about Jesus in Rome, the capital of the evil empire, and he actively takes steps to make that happen. He probably would have been cleared of all the charges leveled against him, but instead he declares his right to appeal his case to a higher authority until finally he is declaring the good news of God to the capital. In this example of treasure in clay jars, he is showing how committed he is. His body will waste away, yes, but the truth about God goes on forever and ever. The death of Jesus meant that the God of this universe somehow became flesh and blood and then died for us. We can't see this in the English version of our scripture today, but Paul actually uses very graphic language to describe Jesus' death. He says we are literal pallbearers of Jesus' dead body. His death has so marked us, we cannot get away from it. There is rotting, stinking flesh from Jesus, and we are carrying it with us everywhere we go. He calls Jesus both treasure and rotting flesh. I know it's a little strange, but I think his point is that putting our trust in Jesus means we can never get away from him. Everything in life comes through this prism, this filter of Jesus dying on the cross. It's a beautiful sacrifice, yes, but it also puts an obligation on us. We are not free to do whatever we want, whenever we want. Our future is marked by service to and for God, whether it benefits us personally or not. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says it a little differently. He says, I have all kinds of rights and privileges from the government, from the law, from my religious background, but I give up my rights. He goes on to say, I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win more of them to God. Do you hear his steadfast commitment to God? It doesn't matter what his rights are, what he wants, what challenges he faces. He is committed to God no matter what, no matter how bad it gets. There was once a boy who at seven years old was kicked out of his house with his family. Then at nine, his mother died. At 22, he lost his job and couldn't go to law school because his education was too poor. At 26, his business partner died, leaving him a huge debt that took years and years to pay off. At 28, he asked a girl he had been dating for four years to marry him, and she said no. 
At 37, on his third try, he was elected to Congress and then promptly lost the position two years later after the next election. At 41, his four-year-old son died. At 45, he ran for Senate and lost. At 47, he lost as the vice presidential candidate. At 49, he ran for the Senate again and lost. Then at 51, he was elected president of the United States. His name was Abraham Lincoln. And though he was by no means perfect, he helped navigate the U.S. through the division of the Civil War. It's almost as if all those failures and setbacks prepared him for that most difficult period in U.S. history. A lot of times people are looking for things to be easy for them. They might think religion is all about feeling good about God giving us what we want. If I do this for God, then he will heal me or, or let me get into heaven. But that's not the deal we see in 2 Corinthians, not at all. Paul is telling us it's going to be hard. Life sharing this good news about God is going to be tough. People just aren't going to accept it for one reason or another. But our job, our role, and the intended future God has for all of us is indeed good. He ends the chapter not with challenges and affliction, but with an encouragement. The outside is wasting away, yes. But inside, we are being renewed. God is doing something incredible inside each and every one of us even as we face a tough world. It's like in a murder mystery on TV or the movies. I just watched the movie Knives Out last week, and there is this scene when the murder takes place and the camera pans to a single drop of blood on the shoe. You know, oh, that's, that's going to be important. You don't know why, you don't know how exactly, but they zoomed in on it. Of course it's going to play an important part in the story. The same thing is true for us, according to the Apostle Paul. Yes, we are all going to die. That is our momentary affliction. But that's not what we zoom in on. All the trouble we face in this world is just preparation for the eternal glory we will see one day with God. Dying is our future, sure, but so is resurrection. Jesus was raised from the dead, and we, too, will be raised one day. I think of our congregational care team here at Grace. This group of people is constantly encouraging those who can't come here to worship with us anymore. Sometimes they are encouraging folks who just had a, a loved one that died or bringing little gifts of flowers or handwritten notes. Several months ago, we had a couple of new people join this group, and it was great. We had lunch together and talked about our goals and some best practices to really help people who might be hurting. This job, though, caring for others, can really get some people down. When you work with people who are hurting or people that have lost someone they love, it can be tough. But this team, they keep at it. They are lifting others up because they have this dual perspective at work. Yes, things can be bad. Our bodies can fail us, and the things around us can be challenging. But Christ is alive, and we can always look forward to our connection with God in any circumstance. That is the beautiful gift that this caring team offers every time 
they come to your door to visit. God is here right now. Because Jesus lives, so too will we. That is our future. That is what we know will happen because Jesus was raised from the dead. Let's end with this. Uh, William McRaven once gave a speech at a graduation. It was about his time training to be a Navy SEAL. He said, the ninth week of SEAL training is referred to as Hell Week. It is six days of no sleep, constant physical and mental harassment, and one special day at the Mud Flats. The Mud Flats are an area between San Diego and Tijuana where the water runs off and creates the Tijuana Sloughs, a swampy patch of terrain where the mud will engulf you. You paddle down to the Mud Flats and spend the next 15 hours trying to survive the freezing cold mud the howling wind, and the incessant pressure from the instructors to quit. As the sun began to set that Wednesday evening, my training class was ordered into the mud. The mud consumed each man till there was nothing visible but our heads. The instructors told us we could leave the mud if only five men would quit. Just five men, and we could get out of the oppressive cold. Looking around the mudflat, it was apparent that some students were about to give up. It was cold over eight hours till the sun came up. Eight more hours of bone-chilling cold. The chattering teeth and shivering moans of the trainees were so loud, it was hard to hear anything. And then, one voice began to echo through the night. One voice raised in song. The song was terribly out of tune, but, the, but it was sung with great enthusiasm. One voice became two, and two became three, and before long, everyone in the class was singing. We knew that if one man could rise above the misery, then others could as well. The instructors threatened us with more time in the mud if we kept up the singing, but the singing persisted, and somehow the mud seemed a little warmer the wind a little tamer, and the dawn not so far away. Jesus is that one lone voice showing us the way. We, church, are those other voices raised up in the freezing cold mud. God has called us to sing loudly, whether in tune or not, that Jesus is alive. The night is not so dark, the weather not so cold, when we are sharing the good news of Christ together in this world. It may not be the fortune that we were looking for. It may not be great riches or security, but it is good news nonetheless. God is here. And the sign of it is found in each of us. Our future may not be certain, but God's eternal love is found in one another, surely. Amen? Amen. For everything happening at Grace, check out our website at gumc.org.